Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent. And as you probably already heard, this was a great big fat week at the Supreme Court. Folks started lining up five days before arguments to get a seat in the chamber for Obergefell versus Hodges, the gay marriage case heard this year. And by Tuesday, the day of oral arguments, the plaza outside the court was teeming with balloons and banners, evangelicals and Hasids carrying signs explaining their positions and protestations on gay marriage. There was a bevy of protesters, one of whom actually made his way right into oral argument and had to be dragged bodily out of the chamber, screaming at the top of his lungs by what seemed like five or six marshals. Today on Amicus, we're going to bring you some of the highlights of the ensuing two and a half hours of historic argument, and we're going to bring it right into your earbuds. Here with me to discuss this historic appeal is Doug Hallward-Dremeyer of Ropes and Gray. He was one of the three lawyers who argued on behalf of the plaintiffs, the same-sex plaintiffs, who want their marriages recognized in their states. Doug has argued 15 cases at the high court, well, 16 now, and he's filed more than 150 briefs there. He served as assistant to the Solicitor General in the U.S. Justice Department. We're delighted to have him here with us. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dahlia. So glad to be here with you. I think it would be incredibly helpful for listeners if you could unpack the two different questions, because I think a lot of folks don't realize that there were even two questions uh, briefed and argued at the court. So you argued one, Mary Bonato argued the other. Could you help our listeners understand what the two distinct issues were, which one you argued and which one Mary argued? Sure. I think most people are familiar with the first question, which is the one that rightly, I believe, has uh, had the most attention, and that is... Do the states, uh, under the the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection of the laws to everyone, it it, it protects uh, basic liberties from being denied by the states, do the states have an obligation to allow same-sex couples to get married? That's the basic question on question one. And the second question really only arises if the court were to decide no on the first question, that the states don't have to allow same-sex couples to marry. But if if that is so, the states can decide not to do that. Well, we already have a situation in this country in which many states do allow same-sex couples to get married. And there are hundreds of thousands of couples who have already made that legal um, relationship between them. And so the question would arise, does another state that doesn't 
allow as a matter of its own state law same-sex couples to get married, do they still have to recognize that a couple that has married in another state and moves to their state, for example, is married? And do they have to treat that couple as married and respect that legal status that they've already established? So those are the two questions. As I said, the, the second one really only uh, is something the court has to get to and grapple with if they decide no on the first question. And, and could you tell us, Doug, a little bit about some of your clients, some of the folks who married in one state seek to be recognized in another, just so we can have some names and faces? Sure. And and their stories really are so compelling, in part because we can identify with them. So, for example, we have um, Valeria Tanko and Sophie Jesty. These are two veterinarians. They they met and fell in love while they were in graduate school studying in New York, and they got married while they were there. And as many of your listeners will know, uh, couples who are looking for joint academic postings uh, often find that there aren't a lot of options where they can get academic positions in the same city. And so they were lucky. They found positions for, for each of them in Knoxville, Tennessee. And uh, since they've moved there, um, Dr. Tonko has given birth to their daughter, whom I've met and is just gorgeous. And, and the question for them is, does the state have to recognize the legal relationship between them? And that has a lot of different effects on them. For one, they've been unable to get a single family health insurance policy. Instead, they have to get two separate health insurance policies. But it also has even more dramatic impact on them. Just last week, their daughter was in the hospital. Under Tennessee's law, Dr. Jesty would not be regarded as a mom. She wouldn't have a right to be there with her daughter. She wouldn't have a right to help make medical decisions about her daughter if, if Dr. Tonko weren't there and available. So, as I say, these laws have real impact for real people. Another of our couples are Sergeant Deku and Mr. Costura. Sergeant Deku and his husband were married just before Sergeant Deku was shipped to Afghanistan to fight for the United States on behalf of us all. And when he came back, the United States Army transferred him. They didn't ask. <laughs> this was not a question. He was assigned to a base in Tennessee. So, you know, again, without any choice in the matter at all, his and his husband's relationship is denied by the state because the Army has has transferred him. And, and there are many other couples. I think we had a total of 15 couples in the case, but their stories are the same. They are like any other married couple, and all of the protections that state law provides to marriages to reinforce them, to provide the safety net if things go wrong, uh, are denied to these couples just on the basis of their sex and sexual orientation. Now, I want to take you uh, to oral argument itself and um, play a little audio for you. And it seems to me, I think we could stipulate that all eyes were on Justice Anthony Kennedy. Uh, one could say that almost every time we do this show, but all eyes were really, really on Justice Anthony Kennedy this week. Um, and he came out 
almost right out the door telling Mary Bonato in that first question you mentioned, the question about uh, whether states have to recognize um, a constitutional right to gay marriage. He came out explaining his kind of theory of the case. This is what he said. One of the problems is when you think about these cases, you think about words or cases. And, and the word that keeps coming back to me in this case is, is millennia plus time. Uh, first of all, there has not been really time, so the respondents say, for the federal system to uh, engage in this debate, the separate states. But on a larger scale, uh, it's been, it was about, about the same time between Brown and Loving as between Lawrence and this case. It's about 10 years. Um, and so there's time for the scholars and the commentators and the and the bar and the public to, to engage in it. But still 10 years is, I, I don't even know how to count the decimals when we talk about millennia. This definition has been with us for millennia. And it, it, it's very difficult for the court to say, oh, well, we, 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 know, we know better. So first of all, this is classic Kennedy, right? There's one word, and it's millennia, and also time. Uh, so there's actually two words that he's packing into that idea. And one is uh, the one you just heard, which is, who are we to uh, overturn a notion that is so old that we don't know how many decimals are in it? So, Doug, I guess my first question is, insofar as Kennedy is uh, the determinant of whether you win or lose, did your heart just hit the floor when he said that? No, uh, I I think that the question is one that could easily be anticipated from the decision that he wrote in the Windsor case, which is a case that was decided by the Supreme Court just two years ago. And it was the question then whether the federal government had the uh, authority to refuse to recognize marriages that had been uh, made lawful under state law. And the court held that it was a violation of those protections we were talking about before of equal uh, protection of the law or the the denial of liberty without due process when the federal government said, we are not going to recognize for all of the benefits that are provided under federal law to married couples, those married couples who are of the same sex. But in the process of writing that decision, which obviously came out in favor of the same-sex couple, Justice Kennedy talked about the fact that it is only recently that this question has arisen. Up until very recently, it was just sort of accepted wisdom, if you will, that a marriage was between a man and a woman. And so he's really just reiterating that question here. But it's equally important. The clip that you played had, I thought, two parts. And the second part of the question is at least as important as the first, and that is recognizing that our conceptions of the relationship of marriage can change. And sometimes they change pretty quickly. And he mentioned the short span of time between the Supreme Court's decision in Brown v. Board, which held that the states could not deny equal dignity to blacks and education was that case, to loving, which was a case in which the Supreme Court held that the states could not limit marriage to couples of the same race. 
So that was also a tradition with respect to marriage, at least in this country, that in many, many states, and it had been so in Virginia since colonial times, that marriage was between two people of the same race. So when the court decided that question, they were clearly going against tradition in one respect, but they were validating an even more fundamental tradition that we had not lived up to, and that is equal dignity in the law. So it's about as much time as between Brown and Loving as between Lawrence and today. And that, I think, is really the more important part of his question there. And and yet, it seems to me, Doug, that the very best argument on the other side really is this process argument, which is, hey, who are the courts to tip the apple cart? You know, the, the states are going to get there eventually. And in fact, it's so much more noble and dignitary if the states and the voters in states make this decision on their own steam rather than being told what to do, having it imposed brutally by the judicial branch. So let's listen, if we could, to, I think, John Roberts giving real voice to this argument. This is not an argument, right, on the merits about the constitutional right. This is an institutional argument that is, if you're going to do this, let the people do it themselves. Here's John Roberts. You're you're quite right that the consequences of waiting are not neutral. On the other hand, one of the things that's truly extraordinary about this whole issue is how quickly uh, has been the acceptance of your position across broad uh, elements of society. I don't know what the latest opinion polls show. the situation in Maine, I think, is, is characteristic. In 2009, uh, I guess it was by referendum, whatever, they banned uh, gay marriage. In 2012, they enacted it um, uh, as law. I mean, that sort of quick change has been a characteristic of this debate. But if you prevail here, there will be no more debate. I mean, closing the debate can close minds, and, and it will have a consequence on how uh, this um, new institution uh, is, is accepted. People feel feel very differently about something if they have a chance to vote on it than if it's imposed on them by by the courts. To to me, that seemed like a very deft phrasing of the other side's argument. And I wonder if you want to react both to the idea that this is just uh, imperial judicial behavior and that the states are getting there anyway, so why not have it be more legitimate? He's very careful to say, look, you know, there is a cost to your clients of waiting, but perhaps the benefit of waiting outweighs that. Well, I I think I'd like to make two points in response. One is... Actually, a a point that Justice Kagan later made um, in the argument, and that is that we are not just a democracy, we're a constitutional democracy. And it is emphatically the role of the judiciary to um, interpret what the Constitution requires. And so it's, it's not simply something that the courts can take a pass on. Well, I guess they could have taken a pass, or at least the Supreme Court could have taken a pass by not granting cert. But the question is before the court now, and they have to decide. And that leads me to the second point, is that a decision to allow this debate to continue is not neutral. If the court holds that the states may exclude same-sex couples from marrying, that will be a constitutional decision that these marriages 
aren't really marriages in the constitutional sense. And so forever, as a constitutional matter, these marriages will not have same constitutional dignity as the marriages of opposite sex couples. And so it, it's not simply a question of letting it, it continue to percolate, if you will, among the, uh, the voters, the Supreme Court would have to say, because they've already held in a number of other cases, that opposite sex couples have a fundamental right to marry and that their marriages, because of the fundamental importance to the couples, they have a, a, a right and interest in maintaining those marriages. For, so for the court to rule against the the plaintiffs in these cases, they would have to hold that that, that protection does not extend to same-sex couples. And that's not a neutral decision. I wonder, Doug, if you could turn to what I thought was kind of a subtext throughout this entire argument. And that was the side conversation that looked like it was more about state RIFRAs, right, these Religious Freedom uh, Restoration Acts, and the uh, perceived backlash against religious people that uh, the argument goes comes at the more uh, gay rights are expressly protected constitutionally, the more religious people are going to see their own religious freedoms encroached upon. This is not really an issue at the heart of the case, I don't think, but it's certainly a concern, evidently a real legitimate concern for some of the conservative justices. Let's listen to Justice Scalia articulate his view of what happens if we create a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. I'm concerned about the wisdom of this court imposing through the Constitution uh, a, a requirement of action which is unpalatable to many of our citizens for religious reasons. They are not likely to change their view about what marriage uh, consists of. And were, were the states to adopt it by law, they could make exceptions to what, uh, what is required for same-sex marriage, who has to honor it, and so forth. But once it's, it's made a matter of constitutional law, those exceptions, for example, is it, is it conceivable that uh, a minister who is authorized by the state to conduct marriage can decline to marry uh, two men, if indeed this court holds that they have a constitutional right to marry. So my two questions for you, Doug, if, if you don't mind, are one, why do you think this issue comes into argument this week? It's not really an issue that the court needs to worry about, I don't think. But two, uh, what's the answer to this question of as we enlarge LGBT freedoms, we are taking away the religious freedoms of those who oppose it. Well, to your first question of why does this arise in the argument, uh, there were a number of the amicus briefs in particular, amicus briefs, um, like the title of this podcast, are, are, are friends of the court, people who are, who are not parties but are raising issues that they think the justices should be thinking about as they decide the dispute between the parties before them. And there were a number of the amicus briefs on the other side, on the state side of this case that said, 
Well, one of the problems here, court, if you decide this, is that you're going to take it out of the legislatures. And the legislatures, when they have decided this issue as a matter of state statutory law, have usually done so at the same time that they are uh, kind of as a matter of compromise, accommodating the religious objections of some people from feeling that through state anti-discrimination laws or otherwise would be forced to somehow participate in like providing, you know, the wedding cake or the, the venue for the reception to same-sex couples who are getting married. But I agree with the second question, which I think is, you know, it this really doesn't have much relevance to these cases, in part because the cases are only about what the states must do. It's not about what private parties must do, whether they may or may not discriminate against others. Secondly, there's another part of the Constitution that already protects the religious liberties of people, especially of clergy. And there was another set of questions later on that followed this that that really highlighted that this is nothing new. This is something that already exists. And so rabbis who have a religious objection to marrying interfaith couples can decline to do so. And there's nothing in the Constitution that would require them to officiate at those weddings in contravention of their religious uh, beliefs. And likewise, if we go back to loving again, because I really do think the parallels between the anti-miscegenation laws, laws against interracial marriage, and these are so, so close. The trial court in the loving case was explicitly relying on an understanding of the Bible that held that God had put the people of different races on different continents and separated them because they were never supposed to intermingle. And so interracial marriages was contrary to God's plan. So that was also a religiously based view. The court held in Loving that the state could not prohibit a marriage of a black man and a white woman or a white man and a, and a black woman. But that, of course, didn't prohibit clergy members who shared the religious view of that trial judge from refusing to officiate at those weddings. That is a question of religious freedom. Doug, let's turn to what I think becomes the pivot, at least somehow the emotional pivot of oral argument, and this is still Mary Bonato's portion, where Justice Kennedy gets into a colloquy with John Bursch. He's uh, Michigan's special assistant attorney general, ably uh, defending Michigan's position. And Kennedy starts to use the word dignity and talk about the fact that in his view, marriage is fundamentally a dignity conferring institution. Let's listen for a minute to the back and forth between John Bursch and Anthony Kennedy. I want you to think about two couples that are identically situated. They've been married for five years, and they each have a three-year-old child. One grows up believing that marriage is about keeping that couple bound to that child forever. The other couple believes that that marriage is more about their emotional commitment to each other, and if that commitment fades, then they may not stay together. A reasonable voter, which is what we're talking about here, could believe that there would be a different outcome 
if those two marriages were influenced by those two different belief systems. Ideas matter, Your Honors. And, and you know, the out-of-wedlock birth rate... But, but that, that assumes that same-sex couples uh, could not have the more noble purpose. And that's the whole point. Same-sex couples say, of course we understand the nobility and the sacredness of, of marriage. We know we can't procreate, but we want the other attributes of it in order to show that we, too, have a dignity that can be fulfilled. Doug, I wonder if you think that this is a moment in which the Kennedy who's worried about millennia is also the Kennedy who's worried about dignity with the understanding that I think if Kennedy has a favorite word, it's certainly in the top three. Dignity is one of those words. Did you feel the same way about that back and forth? I, I did, and I think that the, uh, the the colloquy illustrated the extent to which the the state was was having trouble uh, making an argument that accounts for the incredibly important dignitary interests that people have in their marriages. Mr. Birch actually went so far as to say that marriage is not about conferring dignity on the married couples. And I think Justice Kennedy rightly expressed extreme skepticism in that because as is true from not just Justice Kennedy's own writings, if you go back to Griswold and to Loving and to a case called Turner, which involved a state who tried to prohibit a prisoner from getting married, all of these decisions reflect an understanding that marriage has many aspects to it, one of which is really, it, it, they, they say, intimate to the degree of being sacred. And that is true. And, and this notion of ennoblement that marriage is. And the states, in order to come up with an explanation of marriage uh, that excludes gays and lesbians from it has had to you know really draw back to such a cramped notion of marriage that it's not consistent with how we really think about marriage it's not consistent with the state's own laws about marriage it certainly is not consistent with what the supreme court has said about marriage and why it's fundamental and perhaps most significantly as your question has indicated it is absolutely contrary to what Justice Kennedy understands marriage to be. And, and Doug, just explain or summarize, if you would, uh, for listeners, what Michigan says its chief interest in marriage is. Because I think, you know, we've said uh, John Birch took the position, this is not about, you know, emotional connection. What is it about in Michigan's view? Well, Michigan has taken the position that marriage is about reinforcing the bond between a child and his or her biological parents. And why is it that the state has defined that as its interest? It's because that is the only aspect of marriage that does not also equally apply to same-sex couples. They have had to retreat to the one aspect of marriage that gay and lesbian couples cannot equally participate in. And I really, as I've been thinking about this, I think of this Edwin Markham poem. Uh, he drew a circle and shut me out. 
heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that brought him in. And that's what the state is doing. It's drawing a circle, and that circle is getting smaller and smaller and smaller to right now, it's like almost a dot, what they're trying to define marriage as being only about the biological relationship with child and parent. And we know because we know it in our hearts, we know it in our own experience, we know it because the state laws reflect it, and certainly the Supreme Court has said it many, many times, that marriage is much more than that. I'm sitting here slightly speechless, Doug, just because, uh, first of all, no one's ever recited poetry on Amicus before, but also because I think it's really been on my mind as well all week as I sort of like gritted my teeth that my husband doesn't clean the drains out in the sink. You know, he always lets all the vegetables be at the bottom. Um, that it's it's it really is in the end about something much more than just uh, bonding us to our kids. There's something about uh, what we agree to do and to be uh, in in this marriage that is is really, really profound. It doesn't have words. I think in my head it does have something to do with tolerating that they don't clean the goo from the bottom of the sink. Uh, but I agree with you. Your poem is much more powerful articulation of that sentiment. Um, I wonder if we can turn to your part of the argument for a minute. In one sense, when this case was uh, we, when we framed it in prior shows, we talked a lot about states' rights, Kennedy. You know that Kennedy, for all his uh, reverence and solicitude for dignity, he accords dignity to the states as well. And that your part of the argument was sort of about, in a deep sense, the dignity of states. Uh, did it matter that Justice Kennedy talked almost not at all in the second hour of argument? Well, uh, a favorable interpretation would be because we, we think maybe he's going to rule for us on question one and question two becomes moot. So that it's my, my sincerest hope is that mine becomes the most important argument that was ever made that is never decided because <laughs> question one is decided in our favor and question two about recognizing existing marriages becomes moot. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think... There's no question but that Justice Kennedy was paying close attention to these arguments. It's it's clear that he is very sensitive to the the federal structure of our Constitution and the the very critical role that states play in that, especially with respect to family law. But I think one of the really important um, aspects of our argument was that this issue has existed for over two centuries now about couples getting married in one state that might not have been able to get married in another state. And for more than two centuries, including it goes back you know, far beyond that. If we want to go, if we want to talk about millennia, it goes back to, to Roman times. This notion that a marriage that was valid where celebrated is valid everywhere. And why is that? Well, the, 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 and I won't call them ancient writers, but the, the treatise writers back in the 1800s said, well, it would be an abomination to think of a couple as being differently mated in different jurisdictions. And just think of all the problems that could arise. If, if you were married in one jurisdiction, then you went and traveled to another, and, and the second state said, oh, you're not married here. Well, that would mean, in a sense, that that person could get remarried 
there. Well, now that's that's problematic, okay? And so the law has for centuries, if not longer, followed a rule that said, even if you could not have validly got married here, we will recognize the marriage that was validly celebrated elsewhere to avoid all of those problems that otherwise arise. And it's really in this sense that the states here are the ones who are departing so dramatically from that tradition by saying, no, we're not going to pay any heed to your marriages. And one of the things that I, I pointed out um, in my argument was that going back again to these anti-miscegenation laws against interracial marriages, even something that was was thought so fundamental as that at the time, they would not disregard these marriages categorically. Now, they might think it was a crime for that couple to be living together within their state. But if one of the parties had already died and it was a question of how do we divide up the estate, those states were willing to acknowledge that that couple had been married and therefore the laws of how does property pass to a spouse would apply. These laws that we're dealing with say that a marriage between a same-sex couple will not be recognized for any purpose. And, and that leads the state to really take absurd extremist positions, such as for one of our plaintiffs who was married and his husband died, they will not acknowledge the marriage or the husband's name on the death certificate. And you said earlier that Justice Kennedy is very, very concerned about, very attuned to dignity concerns. That is the ultimate indignity, to refuse to acknowledge, even on a death certificate, that this couple was married. Doug, I want to thank you very, very much. I know this was a busy week for you. Doug Hallward-Dreemeyer of Ropes and Gray is one of the three lawyers who argued on behalf of the plaintiffs in this week's historic Obergefell versus Hodges. Doug, thank you for joining us this week on Amicus. Thank you, Dahlia, for having me. I'm glad to be here. Now, before we leave you today, just a brief reminder that Amicus is but one of the many terrific podcasts in the Panoply Network. Here's a taste of another hot off the presses this week. I'm Sam Zavell, host of Adulthood Made Easy, and this week we're going on an apartment hunt. It's one of the hardest things to do right after graduating college, but Elise Glink will help us read Elise, go on a walkthrough, and negotiate with your landlord. You can find all of the Real Simple podcasts at iTunes.com Panoply or at Panoply.fm. And that is it for this episode of Amicus. As always, we're eager to hear your thoughts, and we're especially interested in what you'd like to hear on the show this summer when the Supreme Court takes a break. Our email is amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. Hey, we'd also appreciate it if you could take a minute to help us spread the word about Amicus by leaving a short review of the show on our iTunes page. Just search Amicus in the iTunes store, click on the Ratings and Reviews tab. And while you're there, you might be interested in taking a look at some of our earlier shows, one of which explored the issues behind this week's other monster case at the court, Glossop versus Gross, all about the constitutionality of lethal injection drugs. You can also find that episode along with the rest of our archives at slate.com slash amicus. Thank you so much to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is taped. 
Our producer is Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we will be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.